Hello, and welcome to the Fantastic Minds podcast. My name is Kate, and I'm joined by my classmates, Tage and Matt. We created this series in an effort to bring to our listeners our deep appreciation for science fiction and the thematic elements that build our perception of the genre. We'll analyze a wide variety of media in this series, including books, movies, TV shows, and video games. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the landscapes in sci-fi media and how they mingle with and inspire character development. We'll visit the fictional worlds of the video game Skyrim, the movie and book Ender's Game, and the TV series Black Mirror. Without further ado, on to today's episode. Alright, hello everybody. I am Matt, and for my segment of our podcast today, I am going to be talking about Skyrim, one of the uh, oldest video games that is still getting added to new consoles surprisingly so on the topic of imaginary landscapes skyrim is a pretty big player when it comes to seeing what's around you and really experiencing and being immersed within your landscape so one of the biggest one of the first things i want to talk about is how the landscapes really affect the story so Within Skyrim, there's a couple different storylines between the Dovahkiin being Dragonborn and a lot of other um, things that come into play. There's the College of Winterhold, which is a big magic storyline within it, and within all of the holds and such like that as well. So one of the biggest um, the biggest ones is obviously the Dovahkiin. It's the main storyline in there. You're Dragonborn. You have dragon blood in you, all this stuff like that. You can talk to dragons. So one of the, the thing that sticks in my mind the most is the ending, actually, which is when you're at in High Hrothgar. You're at the throat of the world, and unfortunately, we're doing a podcast, so I can't exactly show you guys the picture, but it's the tallest point on the map. And basically, you've got this really intense music playing in the background. There's a snowstorm. You can see all of Skyrim is stretched out before you. And it's really just one of a, a big scene. And, you know, Bethesda really carries itself well in that aspect of, hey, like, this is supposed to be really meaningful. This is the landscape that's set out before you. Like, it ties into the story. You're at the highest point and everything like that. So it's really... Uh, it's kind of cool to see, basically, which you can't experience through the podcast, unfortunately. But I encourage everyone that's listening to actually go out play Skyrim and see it for yourself. So to give you guys a little bit more clarity on what it's kind of like towards the setting of the story, um, Bethesda is really good with sounds as well, especially in the Skyrim series. Their soundtrack is really strong and powerful, and you kind of get this really good sense of music and sense of place as you're listening to the soundtrack seeing these landscapes experiencing the story throughout all this so i'm going to play a little clip this is the dragonborn song which is one of the main things that gets played when you're at a big peak point in any of the story you're coming upon a new really cool place and stuff like that so here's a, a short clip of what this song kind of amounts to when you get to these places
So as you can kind of hear from that, that's really, you know, it's almost a stirring type music. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, like, it definitely, I've never played Skyrim before, so it's really cool to hear about it. And you definitely feel that sense of, like, climax in the music. It, it just builds and you really get that sense of there's something really important going on and it conveys a very like stark and serious landscape. Which is really what Bethesda kind of plays at with those soundtracks and stuff like that, which I'm glad Tej kind of interrupted there and kind of, you know, helped me out a little bit. But yeah, so Bethesda does a super good job of kind of combining all these elements along with the landscape to give you this really big moment of, wow, something huge is happening here and I kind of need to pay attention a little bit to what is going on. So one of the next topics that I wanted to touch on is how each of the holds, which are essentially the different states within Skyrim, if you will, um, how they differ and not only in just their landscape, but in the people you encounter as well. But one of the uh, one of the big ones that you first come up on is White Run, which is really just a rural farmland area, which gives you kind of a a muted intro to the game. You're still trying to figure out a lot of what's going on, which is really nice because there's not more bells and whistles happening, or you're still trying to find a place within Skyrim for your character. So coming into White Run to start with is really nice because it's a plain landscape. You can focus on the story, on what's actually happening, and it's kind of underwhelming almost in a sense. Whereas once you get a little further on into the game, you get into some of the other holds. You get into Winterhold, which is um, one of the furthest north ones, has the College of Winterhold, and is really just a big snowy mountainous landscape. Seems like a place where a lot of mystical things can um, happen and such like that. So as someone who hasn't really experienced this game, my question would be, as you go through the game, as you progress, would you say the landscapes become more intricate? Most definitely. And I think what they're kind of playing at for this is um, you already have a sense of place in the game. You know what's going on. And it's just giving you some something more to digest, essentially, as, hey, you know, you're going on this mission to go and find this artifact or something. You know what's happening. Here's just this immersive landscape you can look at and the landscapes actually help shape some of the missions as well where you have to climb up you know like i said earlier to get to the throw of the world you have to climb up this gigantic staircase and really see and interact with this landscape so it's it's kind of big the further you get into the story especially um, once you get into like solitude and some of the more northern ones the landscapes get much more dramatic mm -hmm. yeah this is kate here i'm just i'm curious to ask matt if when you're playing skyrim if you ever feel that there's a point of no return is there a lot for you to explore you can go north south east west without worrying about reaching the end or are there some borders within the game? So Skyrim is a huge open world map where it almost seems like there's an infinite amount of points where you can actually explore and discover and fast travel and stuff like that. But there actually 
is limits to um, the world and to take kind of from our textbook here from chapter 13 on geography and maps. So in here it states that a lot of maps on um, sci-fi and fantasy and stuff like that are surrounded by water or space, just this blank area that says, hey, you know, there might be something further past this water, but there's not which is really interesting because Skyrim is actually surrounded by other countries, if you will, whereas Skyrim is a country as the United States would be and Hammerfell is a country as Canada would be. So it's interesting that they actually think of all these other places and you see that throughout the game. There's dark elves that come from a certain country and stuff like that. So it's kind of cool that they don't just use the whole water margin area where they actually have a set border for these. Yeah, and something I know um, from experiencing other sci-fi and fantasy things is, and, and reading uh, from our text here, is that uh, the development of worlds and different biomes definitely makes it more believable. And, and hearing about the, the stark differences in states and countries kind of in the, the Skyrim world is pretty pretty interesting and makes it very believable. Right, and it definitely does help with that world-building aspect where you can go these other places. You're not just stuck within Skyrim with this one product. You can actually make a little bit more, you know, storylines and spin-offs and stuff like that from there being all these states around so next up on the table for you, Tej is going to be talking about more of the movie aspect of landscapes, and here he is. Hey all uh, as Matt said, um, my segment today will be uh, looking into Ender's Game. Uh, we'll be considering both the book and the movie, um, and yeah, let's get into it. So, through the lens of world building, uh, Ender's Game, I think, is a very unique kind of concept um, in the sense that there are two worlds that the reader experiences. And when we meet Ender, this is after the aliens have attacked Earth. Um, Earth is, was decimated by an alien attack um, 50 years prior. Um, and so it creates a very grim setting for which Ender is brought up in. Um, however, you meet Ender and Earth in, in his area seems nice. There's still a lot of fear and the landscape kind of helps develop a, a sense of fear masked by uh, joy. So there's, there's always an underlying feeling of something's going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just real quick, I'm just curious, what, uh, is this set in like a year, a specific year? I'm just trying to get a handle on the setting a little bit more. Actually, Kate, yeah, so that's a really good question um, because another unique uh, fact about this book uh, and movie is that it's not actually set at a specific year or date. Uh, which allows it, um, in my mind, to be consumed as the future, even in the future. So the 
the two worlds are, are Earth, where we first meet Ender, uh, and then his battle school, um, which is in a in a uh, outer orbit of Earth. Um, one of the things I really want to look into is Earth as its own specific world, because a lot of times in sci-fi and fantasy, I feel like Earth is not developed as a separate world or, or like a secondary world. Um, so it's interesting to see that uh, Earth is described as like mostly covered in oceans, which um, to quote a bit from uh, our textbook here, chapter 21, um, worlds often exist to support the stories set in them. Um, which is a quote from Mark J.P. Wolf. Uh, and I feel like Earth is used only to support Ender's history. Right? So we, we, we use Earth as our connection to Ender, um, though outside that, we as the reader uh, from Earth don't really have much of a connection um, besides his home. This, I think, allows us to focus more on Ender's world in his battle school. Uh, and see him more developed through battle training than his experiences back home. So I have a question for both of my co-hosts here. Um, and I was going to ask, because of this simplification of Earth, I wanted to know what you guys thought about your ability to connect with a character that is developed uh, or based in a more simplified world. So I think that's really interesting because I think that you identify with the characters a little bit more in those simplified worlds because you have so much less to focus on, like, environment-wise, whereas it's mm -hmm. more about the character, character development, and stuff like that. One of the more prominent scenes, I guess, that I think of is in The Hobbit, when he first meets Gollum, it's a really mm. dark, dreary landscape. There's just some rocks and a pond is all it is. So you really can kind of see the interaction between the two characters. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to point out that this kind of got me thinking about what Matt was talking about in Skyrim. Skyrim's world is so vast and unique that it becomes less about the character or you who is playing the game and more about the setting and where you can navigate. Um, so th that's my two cents on this. Um, but I do agree with Matt that in a more simplified world, we can more easily relate to the character because that's going to be the main focus. Yeah, definitely. So then in that sense, like, do you guys feel that in a more simplified world, like Matt, you were saying, you, you the reader, kind of have to create more of the character? Do you feel like you end up adding a lot of your own personality traits and experiences into Def like the emotions of the character? Definitely. It allows you to empathize a lot more with the character and really see what they're experiencing and kind of see it within your own life as, you know, things that you've experienced or are going through at the time. Very cool. So getting back to Ender's game, I think one thing that I noticed when I read the book uh, and also saw the movie um, was the adult-child relationship that kind of plays out throughout the entire book. Um, I saw this through 
character interactions. Ender is a child and he's being taught by uh, instructors who are older. And so there's a dynamic of Ender being a genius and understanding things better than the adults, but the adults still kind of wanting to control him. Um, but in the sense of landscape, what I noticed is there's a lot of adult child thinking that goes into that I noticed in the development of the landscape like earth feels very adult it's very simplified there's a point to it and there's not much else the the battle school has a very childlike imaginative idea like it's orbiting earth there's lasers there's spaceships there's there's all this stuff that a child would believe and imagine uh, and create their own world in. Like, I don't know if you guys did, but when I was young, I'd definitely like go outside and you play lightsabers or <laughs> drive your spaceship that was a cardboard box that your parents got from the old water heater. Um, but I definitely, I felt that sense of creativity and, and like imagination uh, and like there wasn't a limit in the battle school. Whereas Earth felt very constrained. And when Ender goes back to Earth, it, it feels almost small and very limited in scope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and i just like to point out, I think that's part of the reason why we as humans love and admire the sci-fi genre so much is because it really allows us to get back into that childhood creativity imagination that so often as adults we're forced into these um, little boxes, nine to five jobs. We're focusing on the here and now and the real, but we don't often have time to express our imaginative side of what the world could look like in a completely different way. And so I found myself myself uh, drawn, drawn to sci-fi work, and I'm sure a lot of other people do for those reasons. It brings back that childhood spark that Tay is talking about. Definitely, yeah. Um... So I think the final thing I want to really focus on today is um, Ender and the way he develops. Because as he grows through the book, um, I feel that the battle school starts to become more like Earth. He's being more and more controlled by adults, so the, the imagination and the creativity gets pulled out and Ender starts to look elsewhere. And as he looks elsewhere, he, he starts to realize and empathize with the aliens, um, which leads into book two. Um, and also one of the big differences that I noticed, uh, I know Matt was um, talking about this earlier, asking me about this earlier. Um, one of the big differences I noticed between the book and the movie, uh, the book is a three-part series. Uh, and in the movie, they they quickly clip at the end to one of the main points of the second book, Ender's Shadow, which is he ends up meeting the Hive Queen um, and having a discussion with her. And I think that the growth from going into battle school and his his empathy development throughout the book is, um, and the, the following book is one of the biggest things that I think is structured by the landscape um, because his his landscape is, is very one-sided, both Earth and the battle school. 
uh, and Ender being so smart is looking elsewhere and finding other perspectives in the aliens and uh, other planets. So that does it for me. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you all next week and we will continue with Kate. Alrighty, yeah, so as Tej said, my name is Kate, and today I would like to bring you into the world of the TV series Black Mirror. Um, I don't know how familiar my audience is with that series, but it's kind of a dystopian TV series where they analyze how technology could be useful in the future, and also how it could harm society as a whole in the long run. There's one episode in particular called Hang the DJ, and it occurs in the fourth episode of the fourth season. And I'd really just like to talk about how some of the landscapes portrayed in that episode are significant to the plot line. Um, so this particular episode, just to give you a little bit of a backstory, it has to do with the good old dating app. So today we think of Tinder or Match or Bumble, those Alrighty, so those are the dating apps that we know. And in this episode, Hang the DJ, there is a dating app which basically controls who you will date and how long you will date them for. And it's a simulated thing where everybody has this device on them and it will pair you up with another person randomly and it will set the amount of time that you will spend with them. This could be anywhere from 12 hours to many years. And I see Tage has a comment. I don't know about you all, but that is terrifying. <laughs> that is uh, definitely some place we could end up in the future, and it is oh, yeah. terrifying. I oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, Matt and I are looking at each other, and it's like, oh, no. <laughs> right. It is very terrifying to think of that kind of thing where even technology could control something you think of as simplistic or as organic as love. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting concept. Yeah, so the world in this particular episode of Black Mirror feels pretty dystopian. The houses are cookie-cutter style and characters ride around in what looks like perfectly well-maintained luxury self-driving cars. So from the outside, everything looks good. It's almost too good to be true, which is very characteristic of a lot of these dystopian-like societies. Everybody in their cookie-cutter homes with their perfect cars and two-and-a-half kids, that kind of thing. Um, I would like to say there is a stark difference between the world of the system, so all those perfect houses, and then the natural environment that surrounds it. Um, so this episode was shot in a place called Plains Hill, Surrey, which is in the United Kingdom. And it's got stunning scenery, and it has a combination of green space, ponds and lakes, and ancient buildings. So as you can probably imagine, it's at a direct contrast to those man-made buildings um, that this system has its uh, characters living in. Um, so just to talk a little bit more about the plot, uh, there are two protagonists, their names are Frank and Amy, and they are paired up together. The first time they're paired up, they have an expiry date, expiration date for 12 hours. Um, and after that, they get paired up with different people, but as you can probably guess, their hearts really do belong to each other, and even though they're paired up with other people time and again, they keep thinking of that first date they had together, 
and they're trying to find a way to get back with one another in spite of the system controlling almost every aspect of their lives. So if they do end up meeting, they'll meet at a remote place where there aren't where there isn't technology and those fancy homes aren't visible. So for example, they'll often meet outdoors to discuss the system and how they can kind of run away from it and how they might escape this dystopian world. Um, and one of the most dramatic scenes from the movie, I believe it's towards the end, they meet up at near this pond, near this crumbling house, and they talk about how the system has failed them and how they need to be with each other. Yeah, um, and I'd like to kind of continue here by discussing the world uh, that this episode revolves around. So this is a fictional dystopian world. And I'm sure you're curious, as was I when I first began watching this, what the real, so-called real or outside world looked like. And if those characters, Frank and Amy, could ever reach it and live a happy life. So for starting us off talking about borders, I'd like to turn to our book, Imaginary Worlds, and kind of read this quote by Ekman um, that has to do with uh, borders. He says, borders and boundaries unite rather than divide. A border between two domains would be impossible if those domains were not juxtaposed. A polar boundary would not have a purpose unless the polder were part of the outside world. Both types of thresholds hold the secondary world together, but they also keep it very... Alrighty, so this quote is, um, borders and boundaries unite rather than divide. A border between two domains would be impossible if those domains were not juxtaposed. A polder boundary would not have the purpose unless the polder were part of the outside world. Both types of thresholds hold the secondary world together, but they also keep it variegated, a patchwork of distinct realities that opens up the geography in a fashion that mere distance cannot do. They expand the world by joining different realities together. And another thing to add um, from this book is um, there's a passage in here. While every secondary world is separated from the primary world by some form of border, any secondary world of sufficient size will contain its own internal borders and boundaries. And that is something that I saw in this episode. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's really interesting. This, this quote really strikes me in the sense that the juxtaposition of the, the primary and the secondary world is the connection between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's Definitely. Um, I was able to really visualize that with the the reality, the real world, and this this other world of your Black Mirror episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. And I think there's something to be said when, you know, you have two worlds, one is the primary, one is the secondary, they oftentimes influence the other, and there's a sort of parallel between them where... You could have heartbreak in the primary world. There's also heartbreak in the secondary world. Or there's mm-hmm. some natural phenomena that occurs in one as well as the other to give it a kind of cohesion. Um, so, yeah, relating that world, um, that concept of the two worlds, back to Hang the DJ, this Black Mirror episode, I'd like to read something from an article which talks about the ending of the episode. And I hate to give away the spoilers, but Frank and Amy do end up escaping, um, which is a really good ending. And it's really cool to see how they 
break that border, how they're in that secondary world, which is not a real world, which is controlled by this technological force and how they can break into the real world. So this passage by uh, Vulture says, near the end of the episode, Amy finally acts on her suspicion that their entire world is working against them and urges Frank to join her in making an escape from the pastoral compound where they've been living. They flee to the edge of the compound, climb up a massive ladder while the world around them begins to disintegrate. So it's it says something else about how when they were in that world, in the in the um, secondary world, I guess you could say, it felt so real to them. And it was only until certain events led them to start to believe that this was all just a crazy man's trick, that they ever had hopes or plans of escaping. Um, and I think that's really cool. When they escape, it says that the world, the secondary world behind them starts to disintegrate. Like it has no power over the real, over the true world. Um, I thought that was really neat. Alrighty, and now that we've heard from all of our participants, we'd like to kind of have a roundtable and discuss um, landscapes and how we talk about them. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think getting back to our, our main theme of character development through landscapes, um, one thing that as a general rule I notice is that there's a cause and effect relationship uh, in the sense that for the character to develop either the character has a change like there's a big moment that happens for the character and their personality changes which causes the landscape to change as in like someone's traveling and they realize something about themselves and the landscape becomes like the sky's brighter. part. Yeah. And there's a moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That that's like a really really big one is that moment of clarity where the sun's shining, um, or either or the landscape changes, which causes the character to pause and reflect, and grow because of the landscape change. Um, so I know one uh, big example we've talked about in our class is uh, Aftermath. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah, so LeVar Burton's novel showcases a lot of this. Um, and especially, I would kind of argue that it's the second example that Tage was talking about where the landscape, or sorry, the first example where a character realizes something about themselves or about their future and the landscape is descriptive of that. So the main character in LeVar Burton's Aftermath, Leon, when he's leaving the city to a more hopeful future, we see how the re landscape reflects his growth. For example, there's plentiful greenery. Um, it's described as a very open environment. The air is crisp and fresh and it's sunny. And even if Burton never straight out said that LeVar was hopeful and things were looking up, we as readers, we kind of understand like subconsciously because we're reading about how beautiful the landscape is so in in our minds we think oh this is good leon's mm -hmm. on his way to something really good which is really cool that um 
LeVar kind of transitions into that because earlier within the story when um, Leon is in the city still, it's a very dark and dreary landscape. It's crowded. It's smelly. It's just this really bad place. And then all of a sudden, once Leon finally gets a purpose to go out and help this woman who's you know sending him these psychic signals, it kind of is a good change for him. And you see that directly reflected in the landscape as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that um, Matt had a question. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to ask you guys... Um, what do you think of when you hear landscape within the realms of media, whether it be a specific movie or TV show or just kind of an idea? Um, and kind of why do you think of that as well? So whoever yeah, wants I, to... I think I'll, I'll go first answering that. Um, for me, when, I, when someone asks me about a landscape, the most striking example for me was actually um, The Hunger Games. Um, and being introduced to Katniss Everdeen in Sector 13. Um, just the, the description and the emotion that is brought on by the description really stuck with me uh, and has since then. Um, so that, that's, I think, my idea of landscape is like that description of the, uh, the character because it... The landscape is part of the character. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, for sure. And I just like to kind of go off a little bit more of what Tage is saying. In The Hunger Games, when Katniss Everdeen, for those of you who may not know the plot, she uh, ends up competing in The Hunger Games and she wins them. And as part of her victory, uh, th- she is allowed to go to all of these different districts. Um, one of the districts that Tage was mentioning is um, that of District 13. That's the graphite and nuclear center of the town, of this place where it's happening, environment. And it's actually the one that Katniss was raised in. And she she just won this victory, and she's doing a tour to all the districts. And District 1, for example is the place that produces luxury items. So all these dif- dis- districts have their own specialty. Some do lumber and wood. Uh, District 1 does luxury items. And that is the most luxurious, <laughs> for lack of a better term, district. And the farther out you get from District 1, we can see how the state of the districts and the landscapes become increasingly decrepit and miserable. Um, so you go from one, number two is granite and peacekeepers. The capital is kind of in the middle of some of the more um, profitable and nicer looking districts. And then District 13 is way on the other end, um, devoid from any of this nicety. And one thing I'm thinking about when I'm, while Kate is talking here is that we don't see any growth from the nicer districts. When we meet people from these districts, they are one way, and that's the way they are when the book ends. However, when we meet characters from these farther out districts, it's they start in a bad place, and because they are in this bad place, they have to develop and change and learn. Whereas those in the nicer districts don't really ever obtain that self-awareness to be able to learn and grow. 
which I think is a really important part of the way landscapes influence character development. Mm -hmm. All right, so Kate, what do you think of whenever you hear uh, landscape and why? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. So whenever I hear the word landscape, I've thought of the setting in Ray Bradbury's 1950 short story, There Will Come Soft Rains. Um, it's set in a California city that is the only one in, I, I believe, the country or the world that remains, although in very bad shape, after there's a nuclear bomb that happens. And it's described as almost hazy and orange, and there's a lot of remnants of, of fire, too, because there's a windstorm that's happening. And... Yeah, so those are my two cents on whenever I hear the word landscape being mentioned. Um, I read this short story, There Will Come Soft Rains, many, many, many years ago. And I didn't really understand it in its entirety when I was younger. I kind of just liked the words that the author used. Um, but now that I'm older, I can really see how this barren landscape is reflected upon the main themes of the story, like survival and otherworldliness. Yeah. So, so Matt, what do you think of when you hear the word landscape? So I really tend to think of a lot of Tolkien's works um, mm. as yeah. an author and as the movie adaptations as well. As an author, I mean, he'll take two pages to describe a tree, you know, so he's <laughs> really, it's something that's really prominent in a lot of Tolkien's works. And a lot of the landscapes really affect the story and kind of give you insight into the characters as well. As I think I mentioned earlier in our podcast or in one of our discussions that we were having, um, in The Hobbit, when they first meet Gollum, it's just this really dark and plain, barren landscape, and it really focuses on the characters and the character developments and stuff like that, whereas when they're journeying and traveling, it's these big, beautiful, just mountainous landscapes, green and lush and sun shining and stuff like that, so... I always think of kind of Tolkien's works and how he uses the landscapes to, you know, really develop his story. Mm -hmm. For sure. And something that came to mind when you were talking about that is the fact that when we are introduced to the setting or landscape in a piece of sci-fi, or even a piece of literature, it doesn't necessarily have to be sci-fi, alarm bells start going off in our mind if something is a little bit too different from our normal world. So if something is a, like very barren, it's described as like kind of a vast wasteland, we start going, hmm, this is kind of making me a little bit on edge. On the other hand, if there's all these components and it's like this crazy setting where there's a plethora of, you know, like a lot of things that just seem to be like too much, a little bit overwhelming, it's interesting to me how the perfect balance is what we're most comfortable with, like not too barren, but also not too extreme. That's something that I thought about. Definitely. Alrighty, well, that is it for our, our uh, podcast today. Thank you so much for tuning into Fantastic Minds, and we really look forward to uh, collaborating in the future. Definitely. Clap it yeah. up. Yeah, clap up.